Hey everyone, welcome to After the Last Dance, a 10-part podcast series presented by Soul Savvy. I'm your host, Russ Bankson, and after each episode of The Last Dance, I'll be joined by co-host Alex Wong to recap and walk through all the major talking points of this documentary series. Before we get started, I just wanted to give a shout out to the Soul Savvy team for giving Alex and I this space to chat about Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. Soul Savvy is a sneaker platform and community that provides you with the tools and resources you need to beat the bots and successfully purchase the products you want for retail. For more details, please check out soulsavvy.com. S-O-L-E-S-A-V-Y.com. So I think it's appropriate that episode six opens with Michael Jordan basically by himself in a room, you know, surrounded by people recording his voice and image as he goes over and practices a line over and over again and with, with slight changes basically just about how people wish they could be Michael Jordan, but when they say that, they're thinking of maybe one day or one week. And it's interesting that his suggestion is try it for a year rather than try it for my entire life. Because I feel like there's a lot of people out there who'd be like, yeah, I'll do a year. That's fine. Make like 30 million, win a title. Doesn't seem that bad. You know, and then we cut from that to presumably his hotel room. He answers the door on the phone with a cigar um, before retiring to the couch with what I suppose is his normal morning repast of, you know, a bowl of fresh fruit, a glass bottle of some sort of spring water, and a glass of orange juice, which to that point was probably unspiked, where he sort of continues on the same theme about, you know, he's almost a prisoner of his own fame at this point. Yeah, I think that was interesting. And, you know, given the Michael Jordan diet that he was on, it's really hard to guess the time of when he was filming in that room. It could have been eight in the morning, it could have been noon, it could have been three in the morning. Who who knows with Michael's lifestyle? But I, I think we will obviously touch on this more over the course of this episode, which really talks about the crumbling of Jordan's public image, especially during the 93 season. But I definitely come out of it saying, man, I'd rather be Bill Wennington than Michael Jordan. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think like, especially as salaries have skyrocketed, it's definitely better to be a role player making millions than star player making a lot more millions, but obviously with a lot less freedom to do what you want. It's funny, when we talk about the last episode, you mentioned the, uh, the Dream Team doc. And one of my favorite parts of that is when John Stockton gets off the bus and just wanders through the Robles and uh, the Robles, is that what it's called? Anyway, in Barcelona with his family and like no one notices him because he's a six foot tall white guy and he's just whatever. And you contrast that with some of the scenes in this, the, the, it's amazing. That it's all pre-credits in this episode where Tim Hallam, the Bulls PR director is talking about how difficult it is for him and the crowds Jordan deals with from the moment he exits that hotel room to the moment he goes back in it. And that scene where kids just start screaming when they see him on the court at Bulls practice, that's when you do start to get the idea that maybe a year of that would be really bad. Yeah, and it's funny that it transitions into a scene of Michael at the arena tossing coins and and gambling with the arena guards. Uh, It's amazing. The greatest player in the world is trying to win $20 by throwing a coin against a wall. And, and yeah, the, the, uh, a second appearance by the, uh, the wonderful Sniff Brothers, um, as dubbed in an earlier episode. And I don't know, it's funny. I, and, and you probably read it. There was that book on NBA players called $40 Million Slaves. And I remember the first time I saw the title of that book, I was like, this is absurd. Like, what are you talking about? Like, it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And then you watch a scene like that. That scene reminded me of something out of like Shawshank. It looked like a prisoner whiling the time with his guards. And effectively, kind of what that is what that is. I mean, you had that moment at the end where he loses. He gives the other guy four tosses to his one and he loses on the first toss. And he sits down in the chair and yells out for security to remove security, which it's a joke, but it's one of those jokes that just doesn't seem very funny. It's just sad. You know, it's like a a big tears of the clown moment where it's like, damn, this is this dude's life. Yeah. And the first winner of the week is the Sniff brother who takes the $20 from Michael and does the Jordan shrug. (laughs) 
<laughs> that was one of the one of the few L's that that Michael took that year. And we also get a clip of Will Purdue talking about how Michael's life was just this one big competition and how he would play these high stakes card games in the back of the plane while Purdue, Paxson, and BJ Armstrong would be playing blackjack for a dollar a hand. Again, I think that's the game that I would participate in if I, if, I, if I was on the team. And Michael would occasionally come to the front of the plane to play, and Will Purdue would be like, what are you doing? We're playing for a dollar. And he's like, I just want to know that I've got your money in my pocket. But it's funny, too, because the one scene when they show him in the back of the plane, or maybe it was on the bus at that point, playing with Pippin and Harp and you know whoever else could afford to get into their high-stakes game, he makes that off-the-cuff comment about how this is a way they can get his money, basically. And you wonder, for a guy who gambled as much as Jordan does and did, how good was he at it, really? Like, I wonder how much money guys took off him. Because you got to think someone like Scotty, who, as cited in earlier episodes, wasn't making all that much in comparison. Like, he had to be doing okay in those card games just to stay in them. Because Mike definitely had a bigger pool to fall back on. Yeah, the thought that he would go sit with Bushler and Armstrong and Purdue to play a dollar a hand game just to win money off them, that's when you start to wonder how much of this is fun and how much of this is something else. I can't imagine it being fun playing cards with Michael. And Magic Johnson alluded to this in the last episode when he was talking about playing cards every night with Michael in Barcelona and how he would just keep asking to play for another hour and another hour if he was losing. We, we, all, know the, we all know that one guy in the card game who, who when he's down in a poker game, <laughs> just do. won't let hey. the game in. <laughs> You're not here to discuss your personal demons? Because I am, Russ. Did I, I tell you about the time I missed Mother's Day in my 20s because I was at the casino? Anyways, that's a separate podcast. <laughs> um, so... To me, it's just Michael was probably just so relentless. And how are you going to, if you're Judd Bushler, how are you going to say no to Michael if he just wants to play cards for four hours on end, right? Right, right, right. But, you know, you do get into like how much of that is him just being one of the guys and how much of it is this compulsive need to win at everything, you know, whether it's something you're supposed to be involved in or not. I think of the scene of Bill Murray in Rushmore when he walks across the basketball court on the phone and blocks the little kid trying to shoot a layup. I feel like Jordan would do that. I feel like Jordan would definitely do that. Oh, yeah. Michael has a lot of, lot of bullying tendencies. So, so, so we jump from there to a regular season game against the Magic, um, which was significant because it took place the day after my 27th birthday. And you have which, Scotty- was five, which was five years ago, Russ. <laughs> Correct. You have Scotty and Mike joined at the center circle for the captain's meeting with former teammate Horace Grant. It's one of those things that's interesting in that, like, this is a 10-part doc that's 10 hours long, and that's the transition you make for Horace not being on the team anymore. Like, you have all this deep explanation about things. Like, like we talked about last episode, they spend five minutes discussing Isaiah being left off the dream team. No mention of how Horace Grant, a key part of that first three-peat team, ends up on the Orlando Magic. But, you know, maybe, maybe we'll get to that later. Obviously, we're jumping around. You know, Mike and Scotty joke around with him a little bit. And it's the kind of joking that comes from superiority. Like, if the Magic were the better team, I mean, they had eliminated the Bulls once. But I don't think you'd have get the same joking from Jordan and Pippen and clearly those guys also didn't react too well when the better team did belittle them so it's an interesting moment yeah it was a very selective scene and I know you mentioned this on the last episode about how thin maybe the the footage and the coverage has been on the last stance season in this game, they clinch. The Bulls clinch home court advantage. And there's a really cool behind the scenes after of Michael in the locker room with, with the other guys. And he cracks open a Miller light and, and talks about how in his rookie season, the, the traveling cocaine circus season, that players would be drinking beers and smoking cigarettes at halftime and bumming cigarettes from the coaches. I thought that was really cool. And then it cuts to the point of view of, of Michael's point of view of him walking from that room right out to his locker room where there's just a horde of media waiting for yeah, I mean, it's a great humanizing moment for Jordan. You know, I think I mentioned it off the, off the air, if you will. But it's cool when you're reminded that Jordan is basically this country dude from North Carolina. You know, I feel like 
in a lot of what we saw of Jordan in the 90s and even going back to the late 80s, not only was he sanitized in the sense that they didn't have him talk much at all, but he kind of became, and I think by design, this every man from everywhere where he didn't have any sort of regional affiliation. You didn't really like, he didn't have an accent, you know, or, you know, there, there, there was no sign of where he was from. He was just Michael Jordan who always existed. So when you get these moments of him, like cracking on his teammates and, you know, sort of turning to the camera with that knowing like Jim from the office, break the fourth wall. Look, that stuff is so cool. Cause it was, it was things that never really happened as much back then. I would also like to point out that that game that they did win to get their 60th win and, you know, set them up for the playoffs, the final score was 87 to 78. And to some of you who probably only recently started watching basketball, that might sound like a halftime score, but that's the way things were in the Eastern Conference of the late 90s. High scoring games were not really a thing. No, we. that's why Ralph Lawler didn't call any Eastern Conference games because nobody ever got to 100 points. I think <laughs> Lawler's Law would have been first to uh, 65 applied. wins the game. Never yeah. applied. <laughs> um, no, and it was also funny that Scottie Pippen, during that scene in the trainer's room, kind of took the Scott Burrell role of like, don't show this. And it's very interesting to see. And like, I'm curious to see how it goes through the whole series. How many different Bulls at different times will say, please don't show this. And Michael Jordan apparently decided, nope, we're showing this anyway. As this uh, series goes on, you definitely get to understand who is actually driving the creative control of it. Oh, I can totally see Michael in the cutting room floor just getting a kick out of telling the producers to include every single Scott Burrell clip. Because even in this scene, uh, because I had captions on, that's the only reason I, I captured this. I think Michael makes an offhanded comment about, hey, you got a drinking problem, dude, as he's walking out. <laughs> a continuing storyline. Uh, <laughs> so we we do another time jump this time to the start of the 92-93 season. So last episode, we had covered Michael and the Bulls winning their second championship. And now they're going for a three-peat. And this is where we get the introduction of Sam Smith's The Jordan Rules book. Um, I read The Jordan Rules uh, probably a lot later. Uh, I would say maybe like in the year 2000, 2001, well after the fact. And and I think everyone's familiar with what was in the book, um, which talks about just Michael being an asshole as a teammate. Um, at the time when I read it and when I'm thinking about it now, like I flipped through it the other day as well uh, in preparation of this, I, I know there was a lot of like shocking stories that came out. But for me, it, maybe just because I'm so desensitized these days because we hear about just every player in the NBA and their backstories, it just didn't strike me as as shocking as probably it was at the time, right? Yeah, I feel like we didn't, we weren't getting super inside looks like that. You know, you go back to that time and anything you read about Jordan or saw about Jordan would have been like Sports Center or actual games or commercials. And then the occasional Sports Illustrated story and obviously whatever was being written in the Chicago papers or whatever national writers were picking up. And there weren't a lot of national basketball writers back then. So to get that unfiltered for the time look at a championship team was unusual. I mean, you, you would maybe get something printed under a player's name as a, you know, an autobiography generally written with someone, usually Bob Ryan, it seemed like, who co-wrote everything. But sort of a warts and all look that exposed things in practice, including apparently Michael Jordan punching Will Perdue in the face, which I was highly disappointed that neither Michael Jordan nor Will Perdue was called on to address. Back then, it was definitely, yeah, shocking. I mean, it was different. It, but I understand why you or anyone who reads it now probably wouldn't find it as shocking because I would compare it to, say, if you listen to a Public Enemy record in 1988 or 1987, it would be, like, mind-blowing when you compare it to what else was around then. And if you listen to it now, you might be like, well, this isn't a big deal. I've heard a lot of things like this but that's just because of everything else that sprung up around it. You could look at the Jordan rules as kind of setting off, you know, that style of writing. Yeah. I think the, the interesting thing too, is that present day Michael is, you know, very adamant that it was 
Horace Grant, who was providing all of this behind the scenes Sold information. Him right out. <laughs> and, and we cut to Horace. I mean, Horace at least gets a chance to speak on it and says that it wasn't him. You know, people thought it was him because he had a close relationship with Sam. Uh, was that something that was like a well-known fact at the time when the book came out that people pinned it on Horace? I don't, I don't remember what exactly the, all the immediate fallout was over it. You know, I would just go far to say, take what you get from Sam Smith in this. And he talked about the fact that part of the reason he wrote the book and part of the reason he wrote like he did was he came into sports as an investigative journalist and he was going to dig into these things rather than just write. So I would assume that he had a lot of sources in that locker room. And given a Bulls locker room where Michael Jordan was the you know, planet around which everything else orbited, there were probably a lot of people who had stories to tell who really wanted someone to listen. And Smith was clearly willing to listen. And one more thing, just to circle around to the earlier point, you know, I don't want to make it seem like the Jordan rules was, you know, completely groundbreaking. There are obviously other basketball books written before it um, that gave you inside looks at things. And, and, you know, the one I would go back to is Halberstam wrote the breaks of the game about the trailblazers. The difference was that trailblazer team did not feature the most famous human being on the planet. If you read the breaks of the game in the 70s or 80s, you were a basketball obsessive. If you read the Jordan rules in the 90s, you could have been anyone. I mean, they showed its place on the charts. I mean, that, that book sold a lot of copies to a lot of different people, many of which probably didn't follow basketball as obsessively as people do now. Yeah, two more things about the Jordan rules. You know, number one, I thought it was really interesting. And this is a little bit meta. You know, Michael is asked about this back in 92, 93 about the book. And he says that if I'm going to be knocked off my pedestal, I'm going to do something myself to get knocked off and not from someone else. (laughs) Which I think was interesting because, you know, probably the Jordan rules and all of this other media coverage that we'll touch on from 92, 93 informs the fact of why he's so protective about something like this documentary of making sure that he wants the story told from his perspective. And and the second thing for me, I love that Jerry Krause like went through and tabbed and highlighted every quotation about him (laughs) in the book. (laughs) And you know what? We need a separate documentary on every time Jerry Krause called Phil Jackson into his office because he calls Phil into the office and he reads every single quote. Can you imagine how excruciating that was? I would, I would also petition for a reissue of the Jordan rules annotated by Jerry Krause. Cause I would read that a second time as an entirely new book. The two things I have two more things from that Jordan rules segment too. Number one, Horace Grant, low key, the King of glasses on that team. I know he's mostly known for the, uh, the rec specs you wore on the court, but we get a scene of him. I believe sitting in his locker, lacing up his shoes with a pair of Kazals on. And then he's laying on the trainer's table with a completely different pair of designer eyeglasses. So I don't know. I mean, you're, you're the, you're the glasses one of, of us. I mean, you know, Horace, Horace should be your guy when it comes to that. And the second thing was, and I think Sam Smith was exactly right on this. He gives an interview at the time about the book and says, basically this book should serve as, an advantage for the Bulls because Phil could use this to unify the team. And I am a hundred percent positive that Phil Jackson did exactly that. I mean, Phil clearly, even with the last dance was looking for ways to unify his team against whether it was the opponent, the front office, whoever. So I'm sure the Jordan rules serve that purpose. Yeah. And at this point in the documentary, because they are running through, the 92-93 season. First of all, there's a montage to Naughty by Nature, so good. So good. and I just want to shout out the tie-dye New Jersey Nets jerseys, a, a very forgotten jersey. from That the was 90s. also one of the greatest layups I've ever seen. Like, <laughs> I mean, you get used to seeing Jordan hang in the air a breath longer than you think he will, and that play, he hung in the air like multiple seconds longer than I thought he would. Like, like He gets past like a third defender just floating literally it made no sense it made no sense that montage opens with him dunking on alonzo morning and a little later on he gets one on ronnie cycli and just 
just the fact that he just straight up murdered opposing centers for like a decade is absurd. Yeah, Ronnie Cycli, world famous DJ now. No, seriously. Google <laughs> Google that one. Probably in Ibiza right now. <laughs> yeah, hopefully <laughs> listening. All of his Serato. <laughs> hopefully subscribed and listening to this podcast. Is all of his Serato actual correct grammar? I don't think so. I don't I don't know if Serato <laughs> is plural. I have no idea. I'm sure I'm sure someone's gonna let us know. Shout out to Tretch and Naughty by Nature though. That was that was a good uh yet another amazing musical selection. I hope someone edits all of those montages down. Someone's probably done it on YouTube already, but into you know, just like a single, I don't know what it would be, 10 minute run with all those songs. Like that oh I would watch that every day. That's the difference between me and you, Russ. Whenever those highlight montages come, you're like, hey, is Ronnie Slykley in this? Is that Sean Rooks? And I'm like, hey, what jerseys are these guys wearing? So <laughs> I definitely keep an eye out for, the, for the, the obscure. I was super psyched to see Bo Outlaw and the magic on one of those. So we get introduced to the 90s New York Knicks. And basically, you know, what the bad boy Pistons were to the Bulls now the Bulls in a way were to the Knicks and the Knicks were modeling themselves in a way after the Pistons and this is the team with Xavier McDaniel Patrick Ewing Anthony Mason John Starks Charles Oakley and I thought present day MJ summed it up the best and this is going to be tough for Knicks fans to watch because there isn't a a redemptive arc at the very end of this when, when they covered Bulls Knicks in the 90s Mike said when they were playing at their best and we were playing at our best, we were just a much better team. And I feel like that really summed up Bulls Knicks. To be fair, Mike has said that about virtually every team during this documentary. So I don't think it's an unusual feeling for him. I did have an interesting cognitive leap during this segment where I'm like, wait, the Knicks were essentially bad boys, the bad boys part two, which led me to think, wait, did Puff name his label after the Knicks being the bad boys? I, I, I don't know. I don't know where that was going. Um, my favorite part of it, though, you get the obvious scenes of, how shall I say this, physical unrest between the two teams. And Xavier McDaniel at one point tries to punk Scotty, and Jordan shoves his way in. And as Jordan is backing away or getting pulled away or whatever it is, you clearly see him saying, fuck you to x-man which given x-man's history seems a little overly provocative but i mean that's just jordan being jordan yeah and 97 percent of the other footage is that just them picking on john starks i believe so we, we and, get and to- john starks <laughs> is shoving himself in people's faces and then being like what are you doing <laughs> yeah we get to the 93 Eastern Conference Finals. So it's the Knicks and, and the Bulls. And, and obviously the Knicks are the up-and-coming team in the East. The Bulls are going for their three-peat. And shout-outs to a young Mike Francesca making a cameo during this uh, segment. Uh, the Knicks go up 2-0 in this series. They win the first two games at home. And this is where we get the Michael Jordan Atlantic City controversy uh, and, on the eve of Game 2. Yeah. But before we even get to that, it's interesting that – and I. I really hadn't thought about this before, but you talk about the, or I talk about the idea of them being the bad boys sort of revisited and we find them in the flipped sort of bizarro world conference finals where the bulls ended up beating the Pistons in the conference finals when they were going for their three-peat. And here we have the bulls going for their three-peat faced up against the Knicks who had previously lost to the Bulls a couple of years in the playoffs. So for them, you got to feel like they're going into that series thinking this is our time. And they take those first two games. John Starks has that dunk, which to my dying day, I'll say was on Horace Grant, not Jordan, even though Jordan was in the frame. And they had to feel pretty good about themselves heading into game three. But as you mentioned, we get, of course, the controversy where Jordan decides he doesn't want to be in New York all this time. So he goes off to Atlantic city and comes back in the early morning hours. Let's just say that. Yeah. And I think obviously it it then dives into the backstory of Jordan's gambling history, right? Like his relationship with Slim Slim Buller, the the golf hustler. Slim Buller is an amazing name by the way. And he should have (laughs) put out a record with uh, dungeon family, but yeah, uh, maybe on bad boy records And, and to your, 
to your Diddy point, uh, Diddy <laughs> sampled Diddy sampled everything. So if he sampled the Bad Boy Pistons, I would not be surprised for his label name. Um, we also get uh, uh, mention of the book that Richard Aquinas wrote, uh, Michael and Me, Our Gambling Addiction, where he claims that Michael owed him over a million dollars, that they gambled over, over golf. So, I mean, what do you make... I feel like it was a valid thing for the media to discuss at that time because, I mean, it was Michael Jordan. And, you know, they talk about right away, people are thinking about, oh, was Michael gambling on basketball? Was he throwing games? And it brings you to, like, kind of other gambling controversies in sports like Pete Rose and things like that, right? What do you make of the magnitude of the how the story turned into at the time? It's interesting because while the gambling itself wasn't a sports story – I feel like that story doesn't become as big as it does if the Bulls either win the first two games or split the first two games. The fact that they what came out down 0-2 and you throw the gambling story into the mix, that ends up amplifying it. And that whole montage, and they get into more of this later, but it just strikes me as a lot of excuse-making both by Jordan and for Jordan. We get that one clip of David Stern, which you kind of need because one of the long-lasting myths is that Jordan's first quote-unquote retirement wasn't a retirement at all, that he was suspended for gambling. But Stern's reasoning itself rings false, where he says that we weren't worried about it much because given his earnings, it never hit a crisis point. Which is like, wait a minute. So you're saying if someone who made less money was gambling, that it would have been a problem? Like, just because Jordan's bankroll was endless and it remains endless, that maybe shouldn't be how you judge whether it's a problem or not. I've never read the DSM, but I don't think that's how it works. Yeah, I don't know. I'm curious what you thought of all that, too. So you're saying that... Uh, Will Purdue wasn't forced to retire early because he was playing $2 a hand uh, on blackjack at some point during the 98 season. $1 card games <laughs> wiped him out. Uh, the cringe interview uh, of the week for me was, I believe it was Connie Chung who interviewed Michael Jordan and just hitting all these. It was something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, she, she's in contention for fit of the week. But I, I love all these old interviews. I think we had Barbara Walters uh, on a previous one when, when she was interviewing Rodman. Just the line of questioning. Like, she's just straight up hitting with him. Like, do you have a gambling problem? Um, the, I think the thing for me, and Michael frames it as, I don't have a gambling problem. I have a competitive problem. And, and I do kind of, I, I do take issue with that. Because I think by all accounts, you know, the, the amount of money, like you mentioned, is a really good point. You know, just because $5,000 is $10 to Michael Jordan doesn't mean that if you are gambling excessively at that volume and at that quantity that you don't have uh, a gambling problem. And I think two things can be true, right? That he did have a bit of an, an, an addiction and the fact that the media was coming after him that hard was probably in some ways unfair. And I also think if you want to get out of New York City during, you know, a hotly contested um, playoff round against a team that is kind of your mortal enemy, I get that. At the same time, there are a lot of places you could go that are not Atlantic City. I also look at it as, you know, he, he, he does use that competition problem and a competitiveness problem. Dog. You're playing in the Eastern Conference Finals. And that isn't satisfying your competitive needs that you have to go to Atlantic City and gamble on top of that? No, you have a problem. Any competitive issue you have should be settled by playing in a conference final in a major sport. If that's not doing it for you, I don't know. And then the, the, the second sort of cringeworthy answer but not answer was, was about in regards to the Richard Esquina stuff where he says something along the lines of he found out about the character of the people he was gambling with later. You're Michael Jordan. You're the most famous person on the planet. Figure that stuff out in advance. If you want to gamble, and that, whatever again that's fine i guess like if you say you're not going broke and that's enough like all right you know to me that sounds like someone who's a heavy drinker 
saying they're not an alcoholic because they don't have a bottle next to them when they wake up in the morning. Like you, you're just like, I, I don't know, you're just kicking it down the road so you can still do it. But, you know, get one of your security people to do background on people you're going to gamble with. That doesn't seem very hard, but not my money. Listen, all I'm saying is if playing in the Eastern Conference Finals and going for a three-peat isn't enough for Michael's competitive juices, I think he should go and try and bat 300 with the Birmingham Barons <laughs> the following season. Um, I, <laughs> I thought it was interesting too because this stock, and we've talked about Michael's creative control, it, These this episode especially, and probably in the last episode a little bit when they touch on his public image, and I don't believe in the conspiracy theories that he was suspended for gambling and that's why he had to go. But this doc is trying to make very clear that Michael was just exhausted mentally and needed to walk away from the game. And I think we're obviously going to get to that in the next episode, I believe. Um, when, when he does retire for the first time, you know, I think present day MJ is going to talk a lot about the, the physical but also the mental toll that it had on him. I, I want to move on to the rest of the series. So uh, definitely want to get your thoughts on this. Uh, we know that the Bulls come back from this 0-2 hole. They win the next four games. There's a lot to talk about in those four games. First of all, Knicks fans, honestly, I, I laugh whenever I see the Charles Smith clip at, at the end of game five. And, and the shots of the stunned Knicks fans and some of them in tears as well in, in their some of the finance bros that was like, you know, in their suit and tie and just stunned. I thought it was great. A few things I want to point out before I get to your thoughts. So Michael has 54 points in game four when they even the series. But what the documentary doesn't mention, um, and because they set up this whole redemptive arc of, oh, Atlantic City, it's going to pull the team together and the Bulls are rallying. Michael was three for 18 in game three. And Jeff Van Gundy, who is an assistant coach uh, on the staff, talked about this on a recent podcast that that is the one game that he thinks about the most from the 90s rivalry because he just said the Knicks weren't prepared to, to kind of put their foot down that game. And when Michael goes 3 for 18 and you have a chance to go up 3-0 and effectively end the series, you know, they didn't do it. And the funny thing is that game wasn't even close. I mean, the Bulls blew them out. So that does speak a little bit to the power of that supporting cast, that Jordan was able to have a bad game. And they went in there and just absolutely wrecked the Knicks. I mean – I'm sure that set them back, you know, and then set them up for game four when Jordan comes out and scores 54 points, you know, and then the following game when, yeah, you have the, the horrible Charles Smith moment when he gets the ball underneath and a combination of Pippen, Jordan, and Grant don't even let him really get it on the glass. You know, it's funny that I don't think I'm curious if you look back through Charles Smith's career, if there's ever a scouting report on him done by Jerry Krause, because that's the only reason it seems like Jordan and Pippen ever killed someone like that. Although Smith kind of falls into that Brad Sellers, big man who doesn't really play like a big man. And Jordan and Pippen would just destroy people they didn't respect. Yeah, and this is jumping ahead, and we'll probably touch on this on another episode. But just talking about this now, you know, I'm thinking about when Michael eventually retires for the first time. I would love for them to have some of the Houston Rockets on to talk about the whole, you know, would the Rockets have beaten the Bulls d during the hiatus years if, if they had a chance to meet up? I mean, I, I would guess that they did, that they did think they would have. Um, you know, specifically like Olajuwon, who much to his credit, I think as much as people replay that 84 draft, you're hard pressed to find anyone who thinks that Jordan should have gone ahead of Olajuwon and gone number one. I mean, I don't think even Houston has that many regrets about taking Akeem. But yeah, I mean, you know, they close out the Knicks in four games and get ready for that third straight finals appearance. But before we get to that, we jump ahead to 1998 yet again. I mean, the time travel in this series is kind of exhausting. I know, you know, if you're a, if you're more of a casual fan, I'm sure some of the moments during this have been a little bit jarring. Um, you know, and we jump ahead to them practicing and sort of staying on that theme of Jordan kind of being tired of stuff that happened in 93 being reflected in 98. And the Bulls are ending either a shoot around or a practice and Jordan's headed to the bus and he's having none of any of his teammates stop to give any more interviews in any fashion. And poor Scottie Pippen, man. 
Like he's headed back onto the court escorted by my friend, Terry Washington, who worked for the NBA and PR and Jordan's just like, Nope, you're coming along with us. And the media trails along and they try and stop Scotty in the hallway and Jordan doesn't let him. Scotty finally stops in front of the bus to give a few sentences and Jordan, who's on the bus, just leans on the horn. I love that scene, too, because you see the video clip and, and you see one of the camera guys taking a photo of him. And then they show the still photo as well, which I thought was super cool. Um, and shout outs to Mike. His fit of the week was definitely the master's vest that, mm. that he was wearing on, on the golf course. And I just want to confirm that Scotty didn't go golfing with him, right? Because we still need to resolve the fact that Michael gave Scotty clubs during his rookie season. And I believe Scotty just never went golfing. Yeah, I'm pretty sure those clubs just gathered dust. Or maybe Scotty re-gifted them to Ron Harper because Harp does go out with Jordan and, and they're like riding in the golf cart in this very sort of uncomfortable fashion with Harp leaning up against the dashboard facing backwards. But before we get to that, I did the, the other moment I enjoyed on the bus was Jordan asking, I believe, Bill Wennington for 20 cents when he gets on the bus, which just goes to show, I guess, how cheap buses were in Wilmington, North Carolina in the 80s or the late 70s. But yeah, the, the, the golf course stuff is fantastic. I mean, again, Jordan bringing up side bets that apparently he didn't tell the people he was golfing with about wearing his wraparound Oakleys, cigar lit, you know, just, just the picture of late 90s multimillionaire at leisure a week before the NBA playoffs start. Yeah, it, it, it was amazing. And I agree with you. The time jumps, especially in this episode, felt really jarring because they would keep cutting back to the 97 98 last dance season but and i get i think they're trying to connect certain themes and storylines uh between the past and the present um in the dock but it, it again feels really thin it does feel like the 98 stuff especially in the regular season maybe there was just not a lot of stuff that was worth showing or you know based on what the producers wanted to do um, it, they just felt like that wasn't going to be a primary thing in the doc so far. And then we jumped to the 93 finals. This is Michael versus Charles Barkley. And before we even get to the series, we got to talk about Michael rolling up to the arena in game one and telling his boy, Amar Rashad, grab a camera. I'm going to have my sunglasses on. Let's talk about this gambling thing. And he, he, he pulls up to the arena in this Ben 600 that I wish we could have seen more of. Like we basically just get the exhaust tips and the, uh, the personalized license plate of which Michael ran through a whole lot of, it would have been nice to see more of that car, but, but yeah, apparently Mike tells Ahmad like, yo, get a microphone, get a camera. We're going to do this interview, which he then sits down and does with his sunglasses on. So it ends up looking more like a uh, Saturday night live segment. And, this is when we get the at the moment defenses of his gambling and the ones that are the thinnest and kind of the most troubling because he talks about how it's fine because he can put food on the table and he's not selling his watch and selling, I forget what his house and whatever else. And it's like, no, that's not a sign that you have a problem. That would be end stage of the problem, you know? And at some point, as someone who's, <laughs> who's made excuses about things, you know, it starts to sound a lot more like justification than it does acknowledgement of anything. He's just extremely defensive. Yeah, I totally agree with you that. And I think it just kind of reaffirms a lot of the points that we made earlier about his gambling. Before we even get to the series, just because I feel like a lot of younger listeners and people who didn't watch basketball in the 90s have forgotten about how great Charles Barkley was and in his prime. I mean, we've had the recent comments of Draymond Green going back and forth with Charles saying that he doesn't deserve a seat at this table to have a discussion with me because he doesn't have any rings. Charles Barkley, first of all, um, won the MVP that season with the Phoenix Suns. In the regular season, he averaged 25.6 points, 12.2 rebounds. In this finals, in, in which the Suns lose in six games, he averaged 27.3 points, 13.0 rebounds, 5.5 assists. And to get them to the finals, the Suns beat the Sonics in a game seven in the Western Conference Finals. And in that game, Charles had 44 points and 24 rebounds. And I mean, I could go on. I mean, I was going through the box scores and watching the highlights. Like when Charles Barkley says that after he lost game two to Michael, that that was the first time in his life that he felt like there was a better basketball player than him. That was a, probably a valid statement coming from Charles's perspective at that time. 
It's funny. I, I couldn't decide about that statement because all I thought of was like, wait a minute, you got cut from the 84 Olympic team. And like, I understand that you probably thought you deserved to make it, but I find it hard to believe he thought he was the best player on the planet then, but maybe he did. I mean, that's the, that definitely is the attitude you need to survive and thrive as a superstar level player. And the fact that he would admit to that is a lot coming from a guy who, you know, obviously, yeah, he didn't win a ring, but I mean, you know, just add his name to the long list of worthy players who Jordan stopped. And the, the other thing was they had home court advantage in that finals because they had the best record in the NBA and they go out and the Bulls just go at them from the start. And once again, we have Jerry Krause rearing his head as motivation because at one point he thought Dan Marley was a great player and a great defensive player. And Jordan's like, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to make sure this doesn't get talked about anymore. You know, and, and that did show the fact that Jordan could go do this interview about gambling with Ahmad and then just shut it all out and just go destroy people on the court. Yeah, you know, I, I missed all of that because I was just distracted thinking about whether I should buy a Danny Ainge Phoenix Suns throwback jersey. Really, really love the jerseys from that era. So um, the Bulls take a 3-1 lead in game four. Michael has 55 points. And Charles and, and Phoenix, you know, they, they play a game five in Chicago and they've got the windows boarded up all in the city getting ready to celebrate. And, you know, Charles says, nah, they, they win that game. And after post game, he says, you know, take that shit off your windows. No celebrations tonight. And they go to game six. So this is the, the John Paxson game. And, and, you know, I did not watch this finals in real time. You know, I, I think I started watching Michael um, after he, he came back from his baseball retirement. I had no idea that the Bulls in game six were down by four points with 40 seconds left. Yeah, I mean, they... They had to close that out. They were as close as they got to a game seven, you know, in, in those runs. You know, again, like to go back a second, like I did love the Barkley thing about the boarding up the windows and being like, yeah, you don't need that tonight, which reminded me a lot of Ray Allen hitting that shot against San Antonio when the ropes were down, you know, to set up the trophy ceremony on the court. And it's like, yeah, you're not going to need to do that today. It's just interesting to see how guys get motivation. It even goes back to, you know, Bill Russell playing the Lakers and Jack Ken Cook had put balloons suspended by nets above the court in anticipation of a championship that never came. The, the, the lead into that game six, you know, I love the image of Jordan getting on the plane with his cigar and a suit bag that had one suit in it saying, I'm going there to play one game. I don't know about you guys, you know, and then them going out and closing them out. Despite the fact that that game obviously was contested right down to the finish. And they, unfortunately, again, like don't give you enough where it's like you have Jordan fly in for this uncontested layup that makes it a two-point game. And then the next thing you see is the Bulls bringing the ball up the floor again. You know, obviously there was a defensive something that happened in between. And, you know, we get this great last play that does more to show that how that Bulls team was an actual team where, you know, they put the ball in Jordan's hands, Jordan passes it to Pippen, Pippen throws it down low to Grant, and Grant kicks it out to the widest open John Paxson in history who buries the three to put him up one. And that ends up being the game and the championship. Yeah, I think that's the gift and the curse of this doc as we're watching too, is that the story and its scope is just too much like even for a, a 10 parter you you feel like everything is being glossed over like even the thing about you know the the commentators made when Paxson made that shot the commentator said that that was the first point scored by anyone other than Michael right. Jordan yep. in the fourth quarter and I'm thinking man I would have loved to just seen them show a montage of Michael scoring all those points in the fourth and to really build up John Paxson, which shout out to John Paxson on a scale of one to, well, Scott Burrell to 10. Um, John Paxson is coming out looking real well because by my uh, in, inefficient tracking, he's like 11 for 11 so far in, in, in this uh, documentary on shots. Yeah, he's, he was really good. He was really good. I also enjoyed at the very end of that, you get a shot of the Bulls celebrating at midcourt and Kevin Johnson walking off, taking a long look over his shoulder 
before looking ahead and wa finishing walking off. Like just that, that brief moment of what it must feel like to lose a title on your home court. I don't know. I mean, that, that, that's rough. And then we get Barkley again talking about how, you know, sports being like a gunfight and we lost to the fastest gun. And I mean, that, that's really, that's really what it was. That's really what it was. Yeah. And, and you know, it's funny. I know we, we keep going back on, you know, Michael's involvement in creative control, uh, which I feel like really does become a major talking point in these few episodes. Uh, this would have been a perfect spot for them to maybe talk about the misunderstanding or fallout that MJ and Michael have in present day, right? MJ and Barkley. Yeah. 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 MJ and Barkley. Yeah. yeah. This, yeah. this would have been a yeah. perfect time to talk about MJ and Barkley and their fallout. And it, and it's interesting too, because, you know, at some point, you know, you wonder what, when does this cross the line between being a documentary about the 97, 98 bulls and a documentary about the mythology of Michael Jordan, because you get, modern day John Paxson and he hit this huge shot to end the series. And what is he talking about? But how Jordan after it all was exhausted and how this championship was more of a relief than joyful. I mean, did all the guys on the team feel like that? Like, I can't imagine that everyone was so beaten down by everything, you know, and how much of that was Jordan's exhaustion and just being done with it all. Like how much did that permeate the other guys on the team? Like, did they share that feeling or were they on the outside of that too? It's interesting how, even at that moment of triumph, even at the point where they've won now three titles in a row, you know, Jordan seemed to be still sucking all the air out of the room. Yeah, it's interesting, too, when you talk about whether this is just going to try to enhance the mythology of Michael. I'm thinking back to a previous episode, too, when they were showing the 91 finals. And remember in the clinching game how there's the huddle scene where Phil is like, hey, Michael, you should look for Paxson. Paxson is open. And, and they frame it as a culmination of Michael learning to, to go from just an individual score to a team player. Whereas, you know, maybe from another perspective, you could just leave it as it is that John Paxson really stepped up in a clinching game, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, at some point it becomes about, you know, how you, how you talk about it. And, uh, you know, we, we do get that one moment when Jordan is being photographed after the game and, you know, he's finally left alone and you get him saying, like, do I, do I really have to do anything else? Like, can I just be by myself for a few minutes? And they offer him a phone to call Juanita, to call his wife. And that was even kind of strange because my first thought is, wait a minute, his wife didn't even come to the game? She didn't fly out to Phoenix with them for, for the potential clinching? I mean, his sons were obviously very young at that point. But, I mean, we saw them during some of the Dream Team clips. They weren't, you know, newborns or anything. So I, I, I guess he thought it was literally a one-day business trip and everyone can just stay home. So before we wrap up, we do another one last time jump back to the 97-98 season. And the playoffs are starting. The, the Bulls are getting set to open their best of five first round series against the New Jersey Nets. And I love the scene of Michael. And I assume because this is the timeline that we jump to, he's driving to the arena for game one with Ahmad Rashad. Number one, uh, Michael's driving with Ahmad Rashad, which is hilarious to me going to an arena with... I know, I know they were close and they were friends, but um, the conflict of interest there is hilarious. And, and the fact that Michael is driving himself is yeah. hilarious. And the fact that he's smoking a cigar is hilarious. <laughs> and, and also, I just want to point out before I throw it to you is that he, they have this conversation, a clip of the convo about how Michael doesn't want to retire too late, right? Like he doesn't want to be the guy who people are like, oh, he should have retired uh, two years too early. And obviously with hindsight now, it's it's just so interesting that he would think that at the time and eventually come back with the Wizards. Yeah, I mean, obviously, eventually he comes to miss it. And since he didn't leave with nothing left in the tank, he figures he has enough left in the tank. You did bring up, and it's interesting that because they have like a, obviously a trail car driving with them too, filming, it would have been interesting to be a driver on whatever road you know major highway in chicago that was to suddenly see a red range rover with license plates that said two tray on the back 
being followed by another car filming them and not realize it's Michael Jordan heading to the United Center. But yeah, I mean, I get why they jump back and forth between 93 and 98, because I feel like he had the very similar feelings each year about being like, done with all this, which is fine. But at the same time, you would think that would chip away a bit at the premise of Jerry Krause being this villain who brought down this dynasty. Because if Jordan just had the same feelings in 98 about being overwhelmed and exhausted by everything that he did in 93, and Jerry Krause clearly didn't blow everything up in 93, then why is he seen as such a villain for blowing things up in 98 that seemed like they were coming to a natural conclusion anyway? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, and as the documentary has gone on, I think we're seeing more and more that, you know, this story is going to get told from Michael's perspective. And whatever bitterness he has um, is just going to be the side of the story that gets told. Uh, before we wrap up, do you have anything else you wanted to add about episode six? I mean, I guess just building on that, you know, I think we're reaching the point where Jordan's gravitational pull is so strong and his effect on the storytelling is so strong that the real protagonist and antagonist of this story is Michael Jordan. Like, I don't think he wants anyone else even squeezing into that frame, whether it's good or bad. And I guess all I would conclude with on this episode is we, we get towards the end of that when he's driving into the, the player's parking area, you know, Ahmad says something to him about the game and he says, like, I don't think I'm going to miss it. And clearly from what took place afterwards, we can see that that is one thing that Jordan was actually wrong about. So that does it for us for this episode. I want to thank everyone again for tuning in and listening. As always, you can find After the Last Dance on iTunes, Spotify, and any other platforms that you use to listen to podcasts. I want to give a shout out again to Soul Savvy for giving Russ and I a platform to discuss this documentary in depth, and we will catch you on the next episode. And we'll see what happens then. You can probably guess. The sneaker game is tough. If you're in it alone, getting the latest pair of hype sneakers is becoming increasingly difficult these days. As soon as you try to purchase, the shoe is out of stock. If you want to improve your skills, you need to learn the tricks of the trade. Be smart and get equipped with the right tools and information you need to help you cop the sneakers you want. Soul Savvy, the exclusive sneaker community.